Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for December 8, 2017. I'm Brian Cardell. This is the Daily Journal's weekly podcast covering salient appellate and constitutional law questions both in California and across the country. This week, Adam Hoffman from Hanson Bridget LLP will be here to unpack a California Supreme Court ruling from Monday that helps resolve a pressing constitutional dispute relating to the management of groundwater, a question of particular urgency in a state where persistent drought has diminished groundwater reserves. The court, in this matter involving the city of Ventura and its governing water conservation district, held that groundwater pumping fees charged by the district are not property-related and thus not governed by the strictures of a California constitutional provision created by Prop. 218 in 1996, but though that holding resolves what had been a lower court split, the opinion leaves some questions unanswered as to just how water conservation districts may apply pumping fees. But before hearing from Adam, let's get to our opening briefs. A busy week of arguments in Washington saw some hugely salient social questions considered by the Supreme Court, including whether sports betting should be legalized and whether the First Amendment gives a wedding cake baker the right to turn away gay patrons, but one case that's sure to find its way before the high court soon was argued here in the Ninth Circuit. It's the latest challenge to the president's most recent travel ban, a somewhat altered, permanent version of the original temporary order that issued in January. The revised order was enjoined by a Hawaii district court, but this Monday, SCOTUS stayed that injunction allowing the ban to go into full effect, pending the Ninth Circuit appeal and another in the Fourth Circuit. Here with more on those arguments is our own immigration attorney, Chase DiFelici Antonio, who's been covering the now nearly year-long legal saga. Chase, welcome back to the podcast. Glad to be here. Okay, so you've been doing a good amount of reporting here on a was a busy week for the latest version of President Trump's travel ban, an order restricting incoming travel from a number of mostly Muslim-majority countries. Um, let's walk through a couple things. First, there was a Supreme Court order and, and then Ninth Circuit oral arguments. Uh, first, as to the Supreme Court order, um, that's with regard to the, the latest version of the travel ban, one uh, distinct from the original one that issued back in January that caused all the airport uproar and the original wave of litigation, right? Uh, what, what is different uh, in this one or what's the same in, in this latest ban? Um, so in this latest ban, I think the one thing that's probably most remarkably different is that it's permanent. Um, and also the countries are different. This one includes Chad, Iran, Libya, uh, Syria, Somalia, and Yemen, which are all Muslim-majority countries. But this also adds uh, North Korea and Venezuela. It covers certain government officials in Venezuela. Um, and it's, it's predicated more on, on national security grounds. So it looks like they've gone back and, and done some more uh, more careful lawyering than maybe in the past and um, and kind of tailored this to, to have a particular explanation as to, to why they need this. Um, regarding the Supreme Court order in, in the case that came out Monday, uh, it was very short order. I think it was only about a half page. And it did allow the, uh, the ban to uh, completely go into effect while it's being appealed. The administration asked for that. Uh, it's obviously a temporary order while this case works its way through the appeals process. Um, and uh, that order did have the caveat that Justices uh, Ginsburg and Sotomayor disagreed with allowing it to go forward. Um, and it said that if the Supreme Court decides not to hear the case, that that order would expire. But if they do hear the case, that order expires upon them entering uh, any future judgment. Uh, backing up for a second, this is not the first time the Supreme Court has spoken to this issue, although um, still preliminarily. It, it um, also issued an order earlier this year upholding, uh, I think, 
more so in a, in a partial manner the the original tribal ban. Whereas, as you said, this is a um, a pretty blanket order upholding the ban as it stands with, with no carve-outs. Um, what, in your view, might explain this more uh, sort of blanket enforcement order? Did it take any uh, attorneys that you spoke to by surprise that previously the court um, made sure to create some exceptions, but here did not do that? Well, you know, folks I talked to were mostly pretty surprised on this, uh, mostly attorneys, uh, immigration experts, and, and professors. Um, because in the previous order, uh, version of the ban that you're referring to, Supreme Court kind of went halfway and allowed it to go into effect to essentially what they were saying, protect U.S. citizens and their interests. Um, but in this case, it looks like because it's so strongly predicated on uh, these are national security concerns, um, it seems like that has been the, uh, the main uh, turning point to maybe at least temporarily convince the Supreme Court to to allow this to uh, to go into effect while it works its way through the appeals process. Yeah, but before getting a bit more into that appeals process, uh, as you also reported on the Ninth Circuit arguments this week, um, do you think that that this order by the Supreme Court sort of previews what it what it might have to say on the merits? Does this sort of give away the whole ballgame? Are they saying there's a good enough basis for this order to be issued or going to uphold it? Do you think there would be any difference once the appeal works this way back up to them? Um, they would have something different to say then, or is this a, a pretty clear indicator of how they're going to come out once they reach the merits? I, I think it's really hard to say uh, really what this says about what the Supreme Court will think about a merits argument. I mean, just the sense that the order is incredibly short and does not provide any reasoning really at all. Um, I, I guess you could, folks I've talked to have said uh, that it shows that they are somewhat persuaded uh, to the administration side. I mean, the only real sneak peek that it gives you is that justices Sotomayor and Ginsburg are on one side, but that's not necessarily something that people didn't expect in the first place, considering um, their track record and, and how they've uh, viewed a uh, previous travel ban. So um, I, I think everyone's kind of asking themselves that question, but it's I don't think it's as much of a preview as maybe uh, we'd all like. Then getting into the Ninth Circuit treating this case, the oral arguments heard this week, um, the case comes by way of Hawaii Federal District Court that had uh, enjoined the ban sparking that uh, Supreme Court order in the first place. Um, can you give me some sense of the, kind of the overall arguments focus? You, you wrote that uh, I'm like, some of the previous arguments, including the ones here in the Ninth Circuit, that focused a good bit on statements kind of outside of the four corners of the order, um, the president's campaign rhetoric and, and, and tweets. Um, but here, more of the focus was on just the, the core issues of executive power in this area of law, right? Yeah, that's correct. In, in previous versions of the ban, um, that's really been central. Uh, what the president has said on the campaign trail about uh, another unretracted statements about having a need for uh, uh, banning all Muslim immigration to the U.S. Uh, but I, I think the, the thinking here is that um, those statements, uh, they can be on somewhat shaky legal ground and that ultimately uh, it's it's better and more direct to, to kind of attack this, uh, this order, this proclamation that the president made uh, directly on the, on the legal grounds. Okay, then, then on the legal grounds, so yeah, as you write on, on the government's side, one of the arguments is uh, you know, essentially that the, the president enjoys pretty near plenary power when it comes to things like this, blocking aliens from the U.S. for national security reasons. Um, is that uh, 
one of the principal arguments, and, and did the, uh, the attorney for the government admit that there might be any instances where the, the president's power here could be constrained? Um, he did. That was actually an interesting back and forth there, uh, because at one point, uh, one of the judges did ask him hypothetically, okay, you know, let's say uh, the president decides to ban all immigration. Does he have the power to do that? Um, and, you know, after some back and forth, the, the answer from, from the government attorney was, was yes. Uh, they, they did get into a bit that there might be some what they called outer limits to that power, but they didn't really uh, too clearly define what those might be. And uh, the attorney for the government, uh, Hashim Mupan, was kind of stressing that uh, whatever those outer limits may be, uh, this case was not anywhere near them, in his opinion. Then on the other side here, uh, Neil Ketal and Michael Reich um, argued uh, that obviously the the order went went beyond the the president's uh, constitutional powers here. In in what uh, what ways did they argue that? What, what laws or constitutional provisions do they think that uh, the president here has overstepped? Well, I think one of their strongest arguments was that uh, it's violate the. Uh, laws around uh, non-discrimination in the Immigration and Nationality Act, and that uh, even though the president does have broad power over who gets into the country and who doesn't, and the visa issuance, um, that you still can't uh, discriminate against people based on ethnicity and national origin, and they're arguing strongly that, that this is the case. Um, they're also saying, as a counter-argument, that they disagree with the government's position um, that to the extent that uh, U.S. consular officers can decide not to let someone who is outside of the United States in, um, so can the president. Uh, you know, why would the president be subject to a different test than, than consular officers? And what uh, Reich and Katyal were saying was, you know, this concept of consular non-reviewability has never been applied to anyone except for individual consular officers, that Congress meant to apply that to uh, those people making those decisions on the front lines uh, of, of U.S. consuls and embassies, but not immigration policy writ large. Sure. Yeah, I just wanted to unpack that exchange. Um, it seems like a sort of a secondary argument made by the government that um, even even if there were some potential violations of, of law or constitutional provisions here, that um, lower courts do not have the, the power to review the president's decision. Here, uh, that seems like a, a pretty bold argument. What uh, Could you just unpack that a bit more for me? Sure. So uh, there's provisions in the Immigration and Nationality Act, uh, which is kind of the large main governing piece of immigration legislation in the U.S., uh, that say if someone is outside of the United States, they're petitioning for a visa, the burden is on them to give evidence and reasons why they should be allowed into the United States under our immigration laws. Uh, and there's consular officers at consulates and embassies around the world who, who make those decisions. Um, and their decisions are final. Uh, the idea is they look at the evidence, they, they make that decision of whether or not to let someone in or not, issue a visa or whatever they have to do, uh, and that person is not in the United States, is not a citizen, has no status, so they have no rights uh, as far as petitioning a court here, and that's called the doctrine of consular non-reviewability. And the idea there is if every single time someone gets denied, uh, they, who is not a United States uh, citizen or anything like that, that they come back and appeal and go through the court system, there would kind of be an endless process uh, by which no denial would ever really be final. Um, so they're essentially saying that if, if a, a lowly consular officer can do it, then surely the president can do the same. Okay, so on the other side, Ketal and Reich are saying that 
this situation is is not that that they're meaningfully distinguishable. If if you know how did the judges respond to to that particular point, did the government give some instances or a previous case law that might have spoken to whether that non-reviewability doctrine is something that applies to the president as well, or is that sort of a novel um, approach? Well, the, the government did have uh, some time on rebuttal, but they didn't uh, choose to really attack that argument. They more uh, went after a, a separate line of reasoning that uh, Catchall also brought up, uh, which is that the government didn't make any substantial findings or any real findings at all as to why our current you know, for lack of a better term, filtering system for who gets in and who does not uh, isn't working. Uh, and the government said, actually, we did make these findings. Here are the findings. And uh, it's because we did a, a large uh, interagency review of many different countries and how they vet their people uh, that we just think that we need this travel ban in the first place. As to that, that last point, that uh, requirement for the government to to sort of show its work to say why it came up with these countries that were targeted by the ban. That was something that came about that, uh, from the, the previous trip through the Ninth Circuit this case took, right? That um, the court said this might be okay, but the government would need to, sh- to show, in fact, that uh, there was a kind of a, a need for it and one that wasn't being met by current protocol. Yes. Uh, the, the Ninth Circuit basically ordered them uh, to take their time and and do a review, which, which is what they've been asking of all the while. Uh, they more or less uh, ordered them and really permitted them to do what they called an interagency review and have all the different uh, federal national security organizations, folks who deal with who gets in and, and who does not essentially uh, look at all these, all the countries of the world essentially uh, and determine um, infor- who has insufficient information sharing apparatuses, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, they came back and said, these are the countries. This is why, the, in their explanation, why these particular countries uh, are, are on this list and we've taken these other countries off. Um, and uh, so they, they claim to have, have gone through this process and, and made findings. And uh, But obviously the, the plaintiffs in this case, represented by Catchell and Reich, um, said that they really made no significant findings at all and and more or less contravened a court order. Uh, presumably the, the government's case wouldn't, in its mind, stand or fall on those findings if whether or not the government has done a sort of sufficient interagency review has dotted all its I's and crossed its T's as to just why this ban is necessary. Um, I take it that, that really isn't at the, the heart of the government's case anyways if they're saying that the president has pretty plenary power to do this, notwithstanding the, the justification. Is that fair to say? Right. I mean, I, I think that is an argument that is, is certainly uh, propping up their, 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 their central uh, thesis here. But it, I, I think the, the main thrust of this in a lot of ways was that uh, the president is in charge of, of immigration and, and by connection, a large part of the national security of the country. And, and that's really what we need to focus on. The uh, the other argument um, w- was was central, and they, they did debate it, but it wasn't what the entire thing turned on. I don't want to argue at least. In terms of the the panel's receptiveness to these various arguments we've talked about, uh, how how did how did the panel react to to these uh, contentions? Did any of the judges tip their hands at all? Who did they seem to challenge more so over uh, these uh, these arguments and contentions? Um, it was really difficult to say. I mean, the one thing that the judges noted at the end, and that you could see just by watching and listening was that the quality of argument on both sides, the quality of the lawyering was, was really high. 
and that they uh, they not only mastered their arguments, they mastered the history of the laws they were they were talking about. So, to the extent that the judges did interject, um, it was it was almost them asking for for guidance and uh, and and clarification. I mean, Judge Hawkins certainly uh, likes to challenge uh, each lawyer early on in their argument, um, and he did do that. But as they went on. Um, uh, Judge Paez and Judge Gould were were more asking, okay, what are the limits of this? What do you think we should do about this? And they were pretty even-handed in in, in asking that of both sides, um, to the extent that uh, they have ruled uh, essentially uh, against the government for the most part in in, in these previous cases. Last one, um, judging from you know, the the folks that you've spoken with or the tenor of oral argument, um, there's a sort of looming near certainty that the Supreme Court is going to have the final word here no matter what the Ninth Circuit or the Fourth Circuit or whatever other circuit deals with these cases. Um, does that kind of influence the how, I don't know, kind of the, the nature of the, the arguments of the appeal as they're sort of just a, a pretty ever-present specter of the Supreme Court here looming over the case. I don't know what what uh, what impact does that have on folks, either you know at at the arguments or reacting to them, or just their thoughts on the case generally. I think that's kind of the million-dollar question. Um, you know, looking back at the second iteration, the previous iteration of the travel ban, uh, the Supreme Court uh, did say, "Okay, you have to let this go into effect." Uh, partially, uh, for only certain people who, uh, who have, uh, bona fide relationships in the United States, they, they can come in. And then later in this iteration, the Ninth Circuit followed that guidance. Uh, and then the Supreme Court did change its mind again and is ordered on Monday. But it does seem that at least in, um, their filings, the, the Ninth Circuit has been, uh, following the lead of the Supreme Court. Um, obviously the Supreme Court filing, as I said, for Monday was pretty scant. In terms of reasoning, so there may not be too much light for the Ninth Circuit to follow there. Um, you know, but the Supreme Court uh, and its uh, impact in this case was not brought up at all during oral arguments, except at the very, very end when Judge Gould noted that they had uh, told the Ninth Circuit to basically hurry up um, and that they would get an order out as soon as possible. But uh, it's it's unclear um, unless you're really willing to read the tea leaves. Okay. Well, then we can go ahead and leave it there. I'm sure, as you hint at, there's uh, more more chapters to be written here in this, uh, this ongoing saga. Uh, but for now, Chase DeFelici, Antonio, thanks uh, so much for hopping on the podcast to, to lay all this out for us. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you so much. In a drought-ridden state with a depleted groundwater supply, major clarifications of how the California Constitution bears upon groundwater management are of pretty urgent importance. The state high court announced such a clarification in an opinion Monday, in case pitting the city of Ventura against United Water Conservation District over the latter's ability and latitude to charge groundwater pumping fees. To help walk us through the decision, as well as questions that remain after it, here's Adam Hoffman, partner with Hanson and Bridget, who filed an amicus brief in this opinion supporting the water district. Adam, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. Before we get to Monday's Supreme Court ruling, we could start at the beginning here. Briefly, could you just describe to me who who these parties are here? We have San Buena Ventura, and from here on out, I'm going to refer to the city as uh, Ventura. It's a more commonly known title. And um, the United Water Conservation District on the other side. Um, what roles exactly do these parties play? How they uh, get involved in this dispute? I understand Ventura pumps groundwater from the district and is essentially upset at the, the rates they're being charged. Is that right? And 
um, specifically about a provision of law sort of requiring the district to charge Ventura more for non-agricultural uses of groundwater than it charges to uh, agricultural users? Yeah, so that, that, I mean, that pretty much sums it up. It's, you've got this, um, groundwater management agency. There's a bunch of them throughout the state. Um, and all of them are charged with managing groundwater supplies, primarily to protect against what's called overdraft, where, uh, people are pulling out more water from the underground aquifers than, um, than is replenished by nature. Um, you know, when, when California was first settled, there was lots and lots of groundwater and farmers used it and everybody used it. And over time, because of the population increase, we started seeing that those levels were dropping faster than they were rising again during the rainy season. So there are these agencies throughout the state that are charged to manage that. Um, and they, like most of these agencies, charge a fee on groundwater pumping um, for anybody who pumps groundwater in their jurisdiction. Um, and then they fund their water management activities uh, with that fee. And, and as you suggested, that by statute, they have to maintain a minimum uh, differential of three to one between the rate that they charge uh, uh, municipal and, and industrial uses. That's sort of a catch-all phrase for anything that's not agricultural. Um, so three to one non-agricultural to agricultural rates. I mean, that, that also is very common. The, the specific ratio is, um, is different in different agencies, um, but it's very common as a matter of uh, decades and decades old policy to um, have these, uh, by statute, this sort of discount. Um, so a lot of the agencies just refer to it as an ag discount. Um, so that's what you have here. Um, the city um, is one of the uh, district's major major pumpers. Um, the city pumps groundwater and then sells it to its municipal customers, um, which is also pretty common. Um, a lot of these agencies um, have commercial retail water companies within their jurisdiction who pump a lot of water and then turn around and sell it, um, you know, through through above ground pipes um, to to their customers. That's what the city does here. But being such a large pumper, they have <laughs> a greater stake in. Um, and the amount of the fees that, that are being charged for the pumping activity. So they, um, they were upset, a uh, couple of different, different things. And they were frustrated both with the amount of the charge, um, and also, uh, the, the differential between agricultural and non-agricultural by virtue of being a, um, a retail seller of water. They were charged the non-agricultural rate. And then they were also, um, uh, they, they dis- didn't like the, uh, districts zone um, allocation. The district is empowered to establish zones within its jurisdiction, charge different sets of rates in each zone. Um, but the district in this case had just a, a single zone that covered its entire jurisdiction. Um, and the city said that they were being forced to pay for water management activities that didn't inure to their benefit. Maybe just a, one quick point on that required um three times at least more charged to agricultural or to non-agricultural users. So that that's something that's been around for a good period of time then. Is the, the purpose of that just to make sure that um, folks producing food or use, using water for any agricultural purpose aren't too affected by potential you know, groundwater pumping rate hikes or things of, of that nature? Yeah, I, I, well, certainly what you said at first is right. This has been around um, since these agencies were first initiated. I, I don't know exactly when uh, United Water Conservation District uh, was was first established, but 
uh, we're talking decades, probably going back to the, the 40s or 50s. Um, and, and these ag discounts have always been present. Um, the policy, I think, has just been to, you know, kind of facilitate um, the production of agriculture. Um, certainly farmers have a lot of political clout in Sacramento and especially did uh, back in those days. Um, and, you know, I, I'm not really in a place to talk real intelligently about all the policy push and pull. Um, but one of the things that has come to light in more recent years as people have started to think about these ag discounts in terms of cost proportionality um, is, and, and, you know, and, and query whether this was on the mind of the legislators uh, way back when, um, it may have been, but when uh, water pumpers, retail sellers, um, municipal users, when they pump water and they turn it into drinking water, they turn it into, um, you know, any number of other uses, they are literally pulling the water out of the ground and sending it elsewhere. The advantage that agricultural users have from a groundwater management standpoint is that they pull the water up out of the ground and then dump it right back on top of the ground where it percolates back down into the aquifer. So um, there's, you know, presumably some amount of loss uh, to uh, uh, evaporation, but agricultural water use is actually uh, a form of natural replenishment in a way. So in a way, they do inherently, uh, uh, their use is less burdensome on water management overall. Um, so again, I, I don't know if that was always the, the reasoning, but it's it's certainly something that's on people's minds now. That makes sense. Then maybe digging in a bit to the specific constitutional challenges that Ventura brings here, there's two sort of alternative ones. Um, that they bring one is that the, the fees charged by the district violate Proposition 218, um, which became Article 13D of the California Constitution. Uh, what does that proposition uh, or now constitutional provision provide for? And, and what is Ventura's claim as to why the district violates it here? Right. So <clears throat> Article 13D uh, enacted by voters in uh, through Prop 218 in 1996 um, places a limit on the ability of um, local governments to impose uh, tax, excuse me, um, fees and assessments. And the fees and assessments are all um, quote unquote property related. Um, the, the trigger for Prop 218 uh, for Article 13, uh, 13D is this idea that the fee or the assessment is being imposed as an incident of property ownership. Um, and it, it arose in an environment in which local governments were trying to backfill the loss of property tax revenue from Prop 13 with all these kinds of random fees. You know, you own property and now we're going to assess you and, um, and, and pay for the things that we used to pay for with property tax, but we're just going to do it under the guise of a fee or an assessment. Um, and so they put a limit on, uh, Prop 218, Article 13D put a limit on the ability of local government to establish those property related fees. Um, procedural limits to ensure that people, um, the, the people who were going to start paying them wanted to pay them, um, and also substantive limitations, most importantly for our purposes here, uh, the idea of, of cost proportionality. Um, so Prop 218 says you can't charge a property-related fee for a service to property that um, basically that's calculated in a way um, that is not proportional to the benefits that the payer parcels receive and the burden that the parcel imposes on the on the service, the cost of providing service to the payors. Okay. And so here then the claim by Ventura would be that they are not getting in return 
a proportional value for what they're paying for these fees. And of course, that 218 is triggered in the first place by this being a, a property-related type assessment. Right. Um, and th- and that's um, uh, that comes out of a line of cases. I think I'm getting ahead of us a little bit here, but um, there was a, a line of cases out of the 6th District Court of Appeal um, up in San Jose that had held uh, that groundwater charges were property-related fees. Um, there are a lot of sort of nuanced reasons why the 6th District started down that road, um, but it, it the, the net effect was that, that in that court, at least for uh, a good six or seven years, uh, people believed that charging for groundwater production was a property-related fee. Um, and so the, the city of Ventura here just followed suit in that and, and, and attempted to you know, apply Prop 218 to, to their uh, complaints about the uh, groundwater pumping fee. Sure. Yeah, before we get into the, the second district court's ruling that, that differed um, from the sixth districts, on, on that point, real quick, the, the other constitutional challenge um, springs from Prop 26, providing an, another limit on imposed charges. I think it requires that voters must approve local government taxes. Um, is that correct? But but from Prop 26, there are some exceptions carved out. Um, what, what is the basis of Ventura's claims as to the Prop 26 challenge? Yeah, so it's an interesting um, development. In 2010, voters enacted this Prop 26, and what they did was establish the first constitutional definition of a quote-unquote tax. Um, since Prop 218's enactment in 1996, it had been the case that any quote-unquote tax had to be approved by voters, a uh, majority of voters for general taxes, uh, a two-thirds supermajority for so-called special taxes. But there was no clear definition of what a tax was and what it wasn't, and there was a lot of litigation about that. So Prop 26 comes along in 2010 and defines tax uh, prospectively only as any government charge or levy. So you start with the idea that as soon as the government's asking you for money, it is presumptively a tax. Um, but then it enumerates uh, a series of seven exceptions seven kinds of charges and levies that are not taxes, that are excluded from this definition and thereby um, excluded from the voter approval requirement. One of them is, the, the last one actually, is any property-related fee or assessment that's governed by Prop 218. So um, if you have a fee that is already governed by Prop 218 um, and, and Article 13D, uh, then that is not a tax. It is a property-related fee. And then there are these six other um, exceptions that, flow actually in large part from the uh, case law between Proposition 218 and 26, um, uh, but but making some, some specific modifications to it. Um, I don't know if you want me to get into the specific one that was at issue here now, but um, the basic issue was because these, the challenged pumping fees were imposed after 2010, they were either under they were either property-related fees under Prop 218, or they were subject to Prop 26's uh, uh, analysis, um, because sure. necessarily that that's basically everything now. <laughs> sure. Okay. But so even though, if uh, like I say, those, those seven different carve-outs exist, the um, and so those certain type of assessments are are exempt from from the the part of Prop 26 that requires voter approval. Um, it doesn't mean there's sort of no restrictions or no oversight over them. They still must. It seems like a it's a it's a similar requirement as to 218. There must be some proportionality, some kind of fair balancing between costs assessed and benefits accrued. Is that right? Well, that's that's true-ish. Um, 
the there's been some disagreement about exactly how the two things relate to each other, um, but it's pretty clear from the text of Prop 26 that, for example, um, charges for government-provided privileges, benefits, products, and services, um, the, the anticipated revenue from those charges can't exceed the cost of providing the thing being provided. Um, and so, uh, you know, as we'll talk about in a minute, there, there was an, an, that was not necessarily payer by payer proportional, just that in the aggregate, you couldn't recover more than your cost of providing the, the thing being provided. Sure. Um, and then there's some other exceptions that have, you know, other weird quirks, uh, regulatory fees, um, penalties for violations of law, use of property. Um, and each one has its own kind of weird, nitpicky history and you know there's there's still a lot of discussion to be had around how prop 26 works um but this case uh did help eliminate some of that before getting to that illumination from the the high court at the appellate level the the second district um cited against ventura on on both of these these grounds right either the prop um, 218 or the prop uh, 216 grounds correct what what was their reasoning on, on those points yeah, so, you know, the, the threshold question, of course, is which legal standard applies. Um, and as you say, they, they found that it was, it was a Prop 26, uh, uh, fee, not a Prop 218. It, it, it was, uh, basically because the court found it was not a property-related charge. Um, and there's a long history of, well, not that long, uh, but fairly long history of California Supreme Court cases that people have been wrestling with, um, that distinguished between um, the classic examples being the uh, apartment association case, which distinguished between fees that are charged as an incident of property ownership and fees that are charged as a result of the voluntary use of property, um, which is sort of a nuanced distinction, but, but important if you think about it. Um, and then there was another line of Supreme Court cases that basically said if you're providing water service to a, a property, like through a pipe, um, that that was a property-related service because basically nobody can own property and use it in a meaningful way without some sort of water service. Um, so, so there's this kind of uh, a dichotomy in the case law between um, services that are so inherently related to property ownership that they are effectively charges um, incident to property ownership and those things that have more to do with um, voluntary use of property. What the court found, um, the, the Court of Appeal found, was that pumping groundwater um, is, is more akin to that voluntary use of property. It's not something that everybody does. And um, the court found, uh, in particular, that because the city, in, uh, specifically, and uh, other pumpers within the district's jurisdiction um, were actually pumping water for sale, right? Pumping it from one spot and sending it off to other places for a profit um, or, or, well, in the, in the case of the city to recover their costs, um, that that was definitely not property related because it had nothing to do with property ownership. Um, it was an, it, you know, it was effectively a commercial activity. Uh, uh, and then, you know, again, akin to that apartment association case where um, in that case you had a, a, a rental property inspection fee where um, so the distinction was 
Um, the fee is not being imposed on somebody who owns property. It's being imposed on somebody who chooses to use their property for the business purpose of renting it um, and being a landlord. Um, so the same was uh, seemed uh, to, to control in the case where you have commercial water sellers pumping groundwater in one location and sending it elsewhere, um, saying that that was an incident to their ownership of the underlying property didn't, didn't fit in the view of the, of the court. So, you know, and then the upshot of that necessarily is Prop 26 governs, um, sure. and uh, so then they walk down that analysis. Sure, and and on that point, they, they found the, the charges fell into to one of the exceptions. Um, and though th- this is kind of a point that the, the high court seems to kind of disagree with just how, how, I guess, exhaustive or how complete the analysis of the appellate court was here, but they seem to say that um, the, the charges were proper uh, enough or uh, proportionate uh, enough that they met the requirements of the of, of Prop 26. Is, is that right? Right, right. So the, the court started with, you know, again, the plain, the plain text, of, uh, if memory serves, there are two sets of exceptions that are all kind of lumped together. Um, but I think it, it focused, the court focused on the uh, privilege and benefit exception. Um, and as I said, the text is plain. It says you can't recover more for um, uh, from fees for a privilege or benefit than it costs you collectively to provide those privileges and benefits to the public. Um, and so the court said, well, in aggregate, we know that the, the water district is not recovering more money than the cost of its service. Uh, so that's fine under, under this exception of Prop 26. Um, and then it, it, it sort of skated past a, a further analysis of you know, true payer proportionality. And this, you know, as I mentioned, there was some uncertainty about whether any proportionality was required. Um, I don't think the court even got into that dispute. It just said, well, you know, this is a volumetric rate. Uh, so that, that, that is to say people paid based on how much they pumped. Um, and so it's necessarily proportional because here you are pumping water and that's how much benefit you're getting. Maybe just before diving into the opinion here, one more question sort of about the, the broad implications that are at play. It seems like, though, as often is the case in, in legal cases, there are some pretty technical-sounding questions, but um, there seems to be some you know pretty important and weighty equities involved here, especially considering that our state continues to be affected by largely drought-like conditions, meaning the ground water table isn't going to be filled up anytime too soon, it seems like. So here you have, you know, cities' ability to, to manageably supply water and, and conservation districts also, um, you know, right or ability to, to keep the water table from being depleted. And, and then also woven in here too seems to be the agricultural versus non-agricultural disparity of charges. Um, I guess just if you could kind of outline or um, give me a sense of the, the state of play here with the, those different competing equities and what where they stood uh, when this uh, case was granted review. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's a it's a great question and, and a really important point. And you know, you and I have talked about these kinds of cases in the past. And I, I have to confess again that I'm a I'm a partisan on these issues. But um, there is, there are competing concerns here. Um, the the issue of managing groundwater in the state is is a huge one, um, and I think there's a, um, a a natural sense uh, amongst people who pump groundwater 
and then end up having to pay these fees, which again, it's not, it's not limited to just this, this one district. It's, there are lots of areas in the state where that's true. Um, where they say, look, I, you know, I install the equipment. I pump this stuff myself. This is my water. It's my land. Um, how can you people charge me for this? And what people don't realize is that there would be no groundwater in many, many, many areas of the state um, if it were not for these agencies. And, um, you, you know, we, we talk about um, uh, overdraft, but even talking in terms of overdraft in 2017 is because there's still water to pull out of the ground, which there just wouldn't be any. Um, if, if these agencies hadn't been around for the last many decades. And um, that's not just an impact on water pumpers, though that's certainly the, the primary focus of these agencies and their concerns, but actually um, th- there's good scientific evidence um, to, well, in history about what happens when you, uh, when you de- deplete the groundwater supplies too much, uh, the, the ground actually lowers. And so you see places where, um, even with the efforts of these agencies, uh, ground levels have dropped, you know, surface levels have dropped um, several feet. And, um, and that can, of course, have very serious consequences for the people who are sitting above it. Sure. Um, and uh, so, you know, those are, those are big, weighty concerns. And, and certainly with, uh, with uh, our population expanding um, without, without any sort of uh, uh, let-up, um, and, you know, and droughts appearing likely to get worse as time goes on, notwithstanding, you know, last year was a very wet year. Um, but, but the overall trend seems to be towards, uh, there, there actually being less water in the state. Um, you know, responsibly managing the water supply, um, is going to prove extremely, extremely important. Um, but, but as you say, the, the, the flip side of this is you have, um, you have the city who has its own municipal responsibilities as local government to, you know, to serve its, um, its population responsibly to provide water service. Um, and, and, you know, there's a cost component here. And you know, the only thing that I would say about that is in some ways the, the city's costs are, um, the city is almost acting as a representative of its citizens in that sense, because the city can constitutionally recover a hundred percent of its water costs. So whatever it costs the city to acquire water that it sells, it can then recover. Um, so from a from a city budgetary standpoint, um, you know it's it's really kind of a wash. Um, but but they are, I think, acting. Uh, you know, I assume sincerely um, in the interest of protecting the the you know fiscal well being of their citizens. You know, and that's obviously a consideration as well. Okay, then cognizant of the kind of the urgency of these questions on the California Supreme Court weighs in here um, this week, pretty unanimously, largely upholding the the Court of Appeal. Um, what is its view as to the um, the property related question? So they they agree that this is not a, a property related charge. Is it for that sort of same reason that there's a difference between the city getting it from the district than um, as compared to consumers and houses getting it from the city? Basically, the similar kind of reasoning. The court was ultimately less, I think, focused on how the water was being used, um, which is sort of an interesting discussion, but um, it, it, it creates a little bit of a problem because um, I'll, I'll, I'll circle back to the <laughs> direct answer in a second, but the 
the the problem is you have a few of these districts, and and the the classic example is the Pajaro Valley Water Management District up um, in uh, near Santa Cruz, um, where where the vast majority of the groundwater pumpers are actually residential users. You know, these are people with homes, and they don't have um, uh, you know piped water uh, service, and so their water supply comes from the ground, and that's the bulk of who pumps there. And so um, that seems to have been the genesis in the sixth district. Um, for its view that it was property related because it was this kind of domestic water use, right? Mm-hmm. And then the, the problem though, of course, is that that rule becomes unportable when you try to move to a district like United Water Conservation District or others in the state, um, where the bulk of the pumping is actually for, for commercial retail purposes. Um, and so I, I think the court wisely got away from that because it, it seems to, to suggest that different constitutional standards would apply in different locations, um, which I think everybody agreed uh, coming out of the Court of Appeal decision here was, was awkward and, and, and created some potential problems. Um, so, so really, you had to reconcile in, in a more uniformly applicable way the, um, the Sixth and Second District decisions. So I think the court wisely avoided that issue and focused instead on that notion of a voluntary use of property and applying the apartment association case um, and uh, and uh, other uh, similar cases to say, look, um, having an agency replenish the groundwater for everybody's benefit and then being a person who specifically pulls water out of the ground um, is not the same as getting water piped to you from a municipal water utility to your home at a tap. It's just it's a it's a fundamentally different idea, and so pumping groundwater, even in, you know regardless of how you use it or why, um, is really more of a voluntary use of property than an incident, a necessary incident of property ownership. So that was really the court's focus, and and it concluded as a result that um, in, in a really I think well um, well stated kind of well thought out analysis to conclude that this was um, not governed by Prop 218 because Incident of property ownership means, in effect, something that you're charged purely by virtue of owning property. So then if we aren't applying the 218 framework, the court, uh, then it applies instead the Prop 26 framework. And it, like the the Court of Appeal says, um, these fees fall into one of the the exceptions, so it doesn't have to be voted on. Um, But it seems to leave open the question of whether it, it met the relevant exceptions uh, requirements. Tell me about the, the Prop 26 uh, portion of this ruling. Yeah, so, um, uh, I mean, you've got it right. They've, uh, they've got to look at this under Prop 26, decide whether it's a tax, and there's no dispute. There was no voter approval, so it's going to fail if it is a tax. Um, and so then the question becomes, you know, does it fit with one of these exceptions? And, and again, there are these two, um, the, the relevant portion of Prop 26 is Article 13C, Section 1E, um, which defines tax and includes all these exceptions. Um, and the, the, the first two exceptions collectively exempt from the definition charges for, um, as I said before, uh, benefits, privileges, products, and services, um, so long as the aggregate um, uh, expected revenue doesn't exceed the cost of providing the service um, uh, to the public. So the the court focuses in on these two 
And, and because analytically, even though textually they're separated into two exceptions, analytically they have the same exact standard. Um, and so it doesn't really matter whether you call it a privilege or a benefit or a product or a service. It's all, um, it's all treated the same. Um, so the, the court looks at this and, and says, that, you know, it's one of, it's one of these two exceptions is the one that controls here. And we find, as did the court of appeal, that um, the, this aggregate cost standard is satisfied. Um, and nobody seems to really dispute that. The district does not receive more money annually, um, you know, kind of on average, um, than, it, than it pays out to provide its water management service. And, and interestingly, that water management service doesn't um, include just putting water in the ground. It, it, it also includes um, conservation activities and so-called in-lieu recharge, um, where the uh, the district is sending out um, piped water service to alleviate uh, demand for groundwater. So they, they consider uh, it an element of groundwater management to provide people with alternative supplies, basically. And, and that's interesting in part because that's been another area of dispute in the state as to whether those things are, are part of uh, groundwater management service. And the court ultimately seems to think that they are. Um, again, you know, collectively, uh, the, the water district is, is, um, only recovering its total cost for all those services. Um, the problem then comes up in the text of Prop 26, this, this section 1E. It includes these seven enumerated exceptions to the definition of tax, and then it has this one kind of concluding paragraph uh, that that isn't doesn't have its own kind of separate sub subdivision um, that talks about the burden of proof um, that that is when a when a charge has been challenged that it falls to the um, local government to prove uh, that its charge is not a tax, um, and it talks about there being a quote unquote um, reasonable relationship. Uh, between the, the, uh, the charge imposed upon a payor and the benefits they receive from the related, uh, you know, service or benefit, um, and the, the burden that they place on the, on the system, sort of the cost of providing them the service. So that's, it's sort of akin to, uh, the idea of, of payer proportionality. Um, that we see in Prop 218 in the pro- in the property-related fee context, but it's different. It uses a different set of terms, this, uh, this uh, fair and reasonable relationship. Um, and so that, because it's not expressly kind of textually part of any one of the individual uh, enumerated tax exceptions, people had kind of debated how it worked. Um, it, it's just not kind of immediately apparent. Um, and the text isn't clear. Um, that's actually a, a curse of all of these constitutional amendments. They're really uh, not very well drafted. But um, and and the, I, I say that it's not just my opinion. The courts have said that. And so, you know, the argument had kind of gone. Look, there are all these exceptions um, that that it doesn't make any sense to have a, a, a cost proportionality requirement. Um, you know, one example is E5, which is uh, penalties for violation of law. Right. If you if you uh, if you cite somebody for a traffic violation, um, the the citation is not a tax. It's a it's a penalty for violating the law. Obviously, that amount 
is untethered from any sort of cost of service principle, right? So um, people said, well, you know, this unnumbered paragraph at the end there, it, it doesn't impose a, a true payer proportionality requirement um, for any of the exceptions. The court, at least as it applies to the uh, privilege benefit product service exceptions, says, no, that that does apply here. There has to be this fair and reasonable relationship um, between costs and um, benefits costs and uh, and the charge. Um, and, and then it, it goes on to not really articulate it in great detail, but it, it hints, I think, very strongly. There's some, there's some discussion in the case that really suggests that fair and reasonable relationship standard is not um, the same as the cost of service proportionality that Prop 218 requires for property-related services. But the court really doesn't articulate what that standard is, um, but that standard was the problem here. So the court says, look, you, Court of Appeal got it right. There's not an aggregate cost problem here, but there is potentially uh, a problem with payer purport, uh, uh, this uh, fair and reasonable relationship standard. Um, and, the, and the Court of Appeal, the trial court hadn't considered it because it didn't think Prop 26 governed, and the Court of Appeal really didn't get into it in sufficient detail. And so the court, uh, the, the Supreme Court sends the case back down, um, and, and also orders that, um, that the, uh, administrative record in the underlying red case can be, um, augmented to reflect evidence on this question of whether the, the fee has a fair and reasonable relationship, um, to the payer's costs, uh, benefits and burdens. Um, for folks that have been waiting around for a couple of years since the, the Court of Appeals decision, is that to any extent a bit of an unsatisfying uh, conclusion here, or I guess uh, not a conclusion, but just an unsatisfying ruling that seems like the court is still sort of leaving open the question of whether these charges are in fact reasonable, which seems to be really the, the heart of, of the matter? Yeah, I mean, certainly the parties have to be frustrated, but I, I don't think they're... Um, I, I hesitate to speculate about what's on the mind of other people, but I, I don't think that part of it is likely to be all that surprising. There was a lot of wrangling around um, whether the district ought to have been given a uh, you know, further opportunity uh, to demonstrate this uh, fair and reasonable relationship in light of the fact that now we know what the standard is that applies and, um, and, and that wasn't the standard that was in play in the trial court. And um, so it's, I'm sure it's disappointing for the parties. They'd like to have finality. Of course, um, uh, the city prefer, would have preferred to have Prop 218 control, and so they're frustrated that that's not the case. But as a, as a litigator, I think the, um, the decision is actually remarkably clear and, and gives some real direction for future cases. Um, but, but even there, the, the uncertainty around what is meant by fair and reasonable relationship, it still leaves one feeling a little uh, a little lost. And uh, so, you know, the, I guess there's never been a perfect Supreme Court case, but uh, the, this one did definitely leave some holes and, and some future uh, uh, litigation. Sure. Yeah. Uh, fair and reasonable certain aren't the, certainly aren't the most clearly contoured of, of terms. Um, one 
One other thing just quickly about the, the opinion, there's a very short concurrence by Justice Liu, who uh, kind of solely writes that concurrence to point out that there wasn't a whole lot of attention paid to the specific water code section um, requiring the three times greater charge for non-agricultural use. Uh, what, what is his point in, in writing separately there? Uh, why does he think that there should have been more attention to that question? I think Justice Liu was being, uh, I think his analysis is right. I mean, so basically what he said is there's this old statute that's, you know, baked into the enabling legislation that created this water district that requires this ag discount. And there's been this question about um, really whether, whether by virtue of Proposition 218 or 26, whether that statute was just completely constitutionally preempted and, and kind of no. Um, and it's the, the implications of the question are, are kind of far reaching. I actually think the majority opinion was being more conservative because they're saying we don't have to reach that question. We, we only have to remand this case to decide whether you've complied with the constitutional, um, uh, you know, standards. And deciding whether a statute is is uh, is void is, is really beyond uh, what we have to decide here. Um, but at the same time, I think Justice Liu's point is well taken, even if maybe unnecessary, in that what he said was, look, it may be that uh, a three-to-one non-ag-to-ag uh, standard is justified under the Constitution, but it can't be justified just on statute. And so in that sense, the only touchstone now is the constitutional standard. Um, and, and that, in effect, renders the statute uh, preempted because it, it no longer matters what the statute says. All that matters is uh, whether the Constitution allows the particular set of charges that are being uh, set. And, um, you know, it's, it's sort of interesting because it one of the issues that these water agencies wrestle with is I think a lot of them, given the constitutional concern, would like to be free from the statutory uh, ag discounts, um, even if they think they can justify them. It's sort of like, why even have this here? Why should we even consider this now? Which was Justice Liu's point. Um, but, you know, without that being the, the true holding, um, you know, there's this kind of question about are our districts then required to come up with some other way to provide that uh, that ag discount? For example, I, I know some groundwater districts um, find other sources of revenue, so that basically they subsidize from other revenue sources the ag discount rather than having it, you know, all kind of come out of the same uh, groundwater charge pot. Um, it's an interesting uh, problem to, to try and address this this uncertainty. Uh, Justice Liu's holding would get rid of that uncertainty. You could just disregard the statute completely. Um, whereas as it stands now under the majority's ruling, there's still this question of like, okay, so you got to satisfy the Constitution, but do you also have to stand, satisfy this statute? Do you have to come up with a way to do it? Um, or do you have to demonstrate that you literally can't before you can claim that um, uh, that you're not bound by it? So it, it's an interesting problem, but you know, again, ultimately it was sort of academic. Okay, maybe just uh, one last one as to what seems to be what Justice Liu says is the really sole remaining standard by which uh, charges like the ones here at issue would be judged by that 
I guess, sort of the fair and, and reasonable standard. Um, you know, connecting back to those broader issues we, we spoke about and zooming out a bit here, does that standard, uh, does that to have baked into it the, the concerns that you laid out, the, the need to, to balance water use and, and water conservation? Is that, is that part of the reasonableness challenge? And, and sort of how um, might it be applied? Obviously, there's going to be a lot more litigation in this case and in future ones, but how uh, will kind of those questions be looked at uh, going f- uh, forward when, um, in, in cases like this one? Boy, that's a, I mean, that's a great policy question. Um, and, and I could nerd out about that for an hour. <laughs> I'll, I'll spare you. The, but the, um, the, the short answer is, unfortunately, the, the, the legislative history, I'm sort of making air quotes here, the ballot materials for these propositional, uh, proposition constitutional amendments reflects the fact that the people who pr- proposed them, right, and the people who advocated for them, were pretty clear that they wanted to make it hard for government to uh, impose and increase um, revenue measures. That, you know, it was. I mean, that was their purpose. Um, these are the descendants, of, uh, intellectual descendants of Howard Jarvis. Um, so the idea that um, that groundwater management has an important role to play in the state's future is is not necessarily relevant and 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 we can I, I mean i can shake my head i don't want to impute to others my views but I, you know it's sort of like a really bad policy circumstance to be in where you can say you know look it, it doesn't actually matter if it's hurting the state you still have to follow these rules mm-hmm. now with that said it's also i think um still pretty clear um that the cost of service is the entire scope of service that the that a, that a water agency and its enabling legislation provides for, um, and that was why I highlighted earlier this idea of in lieu recharge and conservation activities, um, because you know there, there there is a perspective out there where somebody would say, well, you can't recover that money from your groundwater charge because you're not th- those things don't put water in the ground. The only thing that you can recover is the cost of putting water in the ground. And, and I, there, there is a line of cases that I don't think this decision, I, I think this decision kind of tacitly approves, that says, no, that the service that's provided is everything that the, that the water agency does to uh, benefit water resources within its jurisdiction. And so I think in that, in that idea that, um, the, that agencies can cover the full cost of all the services that they provide um, is where the opportunity to balance those policy considerations really comes in, um, you know, because because you can say, look, be creative, find ways to maintain this water supply, and as long as it it really is tied to the improvement of that supply, you know, the maintaining of that supply, um, you you can recover those costs. And and you know, yes, you're going to have to jump through through some hoops, and yes, you're going to have to make sure that you're not charging one person too much and somebody else too little. Um, uh, you, you know, in a, in a broadly group, I don't mean literally person by person, but in a, in a you know, broad groups sort of sense. Um, but you can get that money back. And as long as that's theoretically possible, I, I'm hopeful that this state will survive. Okay, great. We'll, we'll see how um, that standard and this case develops further. One thing seems certain, obviously, groundwater litigation is not, not going anywhere anytime soon. Um, so for now, Adam Hoffman from Hanson Bridget LLP, thanks so much for unpacking this case for us. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. 
And with that, our show for December 8th, 2017 is complete. Thanks so much for tuning in. It's much appreciated. Hope you enjoyed it. I'm Brian Cardow. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.